You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Folks, listen, this coming Saturday night, or well, afternoon, 4 o'clock, and uh, next Sunday at 4 o'clock, you're not going to want to miss the Christmas Eve services, and you don't want to come alone. Uh, You need to bring somebody with you. Um, It's going to be a great time together. It'll be different than you've experienced here before, I promise you. And then on Sunday, next Sunday morning, uh, 10 o'clock, one service, we'll just all meet together on Christmas Eve on the 24th, okay? Now, we're glad we've got some of our best and dearest friends that are with us. Ernest and Miss Carolyn are here visiting uh, for the weekend, and we're glad they're here. Several other things I need to mention to you. This afternoon at 2.30, uh, Rick Burgess will, will bury his dad. Pray for him. Uh, I've done that, and very few people have ever had the privilege of doing that. It's not the easiest thing in the world. So pray for him. Pray for Scott Dawson. Uh, I want you to hear Scott's story sometime on how God just gave them a multi-million dollar building. And, um, uh, but about two weeks ago, tornado hit it. And so they've got a lot of damage, a lot of cleaning up, and, uh, Both of these men are members of our church. Chris Johnson, who is off. Um, These three men are in national ministries. They're across the country all the time, so we need to pray for them. Uh, Chris is over preaching at Valley View, which is the church that we're helping, and we are right there uh, ready to call them a pastor, and we're going to help with that. And another major church in town has stepped forward and said they want to help with it as well. But we're going to give you all that in January. So we've got all these things to be praying for, numbers of people that we need to, um, Dick, uh, we need to keep uh, Dick and Diane in our prayers. Diane was here this morning. Uh, Hannah Blankenship we need to keep in our prayers. So a lot of folks we need just to uh, remember. Father, prepare our hearts now in these moments as we think of all of these in our fellowship that need our prayer support, that need our encouragement, that uh, need to know that, we, that their church is standing with them and behind them, we lift them up to you, and we do it now in Jesus' name, amen. If you go to Israel with me, and I always take my groups, and by the way, let me tell you, we'll get back over there. Uh, All of this will settle out and down, but um, I always take my groups to a place that many people, many denominations believe to be the holiest site of all in um, Israel, in Jerusalem. It is called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. I think we may have a couple of pictures that the guys put together. You see it right there in the the center, uh, that big dome right there. Uh, massive church, all of that. In fact, that whole thing is really 
uh, the church of the Holy Sepulchre. It was built originally in 336 by uh, Helena, the mother of Constantine the Great. It was torn down by the Muslims, rebuilt and torn down. I don't have time to go through that history. Uh, but somewhere around a thousand or so, they built the, all of this massive church there. And uh, it's been there since that time, and, and it's, it's really, there are six denominations that claim that as their own. Six, Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, Armenian Apostolic, the Egyptian Coptic, the uh, Ethiopian Orthodox, and the Syrian um, Orthodox, or Syriac Orthodox, as they are called. They all claim that. And you would think that that is a place where you've got six denominations. All of their priests, you know, are there. All of those six denominations, they have priests there. Some have nuns there. And you would think that they all come together there. And this is the place where you would find great peace. Because under that dome, uh, they believe is the place where Jesus was crucified. And then just down from that, is a massive stone, a slab of stone that they call the, the stone of preparation where they believe that Jesus' Jesus's body was prepared for the grave. And then right around all of that in that building, right? you see that right there? That's been built up. Oh, boy, I can't remember that name. Um, I can't remember the name, but there's a cave that is there. When you walk into it, you'll see it. Uh, you could see the cave on the inside. But that was a cave, and they believe that was where Jesus was buried. And, of course, that was where Jesus was resurrected. And, and you would believe that now all of these denominations that have come together here, and all of their priests are there, and um, they're all represented by priests, that this is a place of unity, this is a place of harmony. You have more fights in this place than you can imagine. About every two years, we're due for one. You, you see one right here. We're due for one. Uh, about every two years, they break out into a fight over who gets to go where, whose section is this, whose section is that, how long each one of these groups can stay in uh, the uh, tomb before they have to come out, and the next group can go in and hold a service. Well, not long ago, about two years or so ago, uh, the... Um, the, the Ethiopian Orthodox and the Egyptian Coptic have rule of the Rus, and they fight each other over who has what area of the roof of the church of the Holy Sepulchre. So on a Sunday morning, there was an Egyptian Coptic priest sitting in a chair uh, on the roof and he saw some shade by a tree over on the other side uh, of the roof. He picked his chair up and moved it over there and sat in the chair. A fight erupted and 11, 11 priests, Egyptian Coptic and Ethiopian Orthodox ended up in the hospital. Fighting, fighting over turf where they claim Christ was crucified, his body prepared for the grave, and where he was buried and resurrected. That doesn't seem to do anything to y'all. <laughs> I'll tell you a better one. In 1890, in a Baptist church in Mayfield, Kentucky, there were two deacons and only two deacons in this Baptist church. One served one year, he would go off, the other one would serve 
but they didn't like each other at all. They didn't get along. Now, I know that's hard to believe, uh, but they didn't care for each other at all. And so, during the year that one of these deacons happened to be on, a new pastor came as pastor of the church, and as a gift from him to the new pastor, he gave him a white Stetson cowboy hat to wear. And so, every Sunday, the pastor would come in, and he would be wearing that new cowboy hat, and he would come over to the front pew, and he would set it down on the front pew there while he preached. But they're in coal country, and coal dust gets everywhere. I know that because through our hometown, we had to run out and get in the wash, or, or better, we had to get in the wash before the coal train came through because you'd get coal dust on all the sheets that were out there. So there was coal dust on the pews, and when he would put his hat down, it would get dust, coal dust, around the, the brim of the hat. So the old deacon serving that year went and took a peg, and he put a peg in the wall so that the preacher could come and hang his hat up on the peg. The next Sunday morning, the other deacon came in and demanded to know how the peg got into the wall. And the other deacon told him, I put a peg up so the pastor could, came. he said, nobody called and informed to me. Nobody called a meeting. We didn't vote on this. My, my opinion was not asked. We didn't talk about it. We had no meeting whatsoever on this. It split the church. Half of the church became known as the anti-peg. The other half of the church became known as the peg. Well, it spilled out into the association so that the association came and they were supposed to pull these two groups together. It split the association in two. To this day, from 1890 until 2023 in Mayfield, Kentucky, you can go by and you can see where the anti-peg pulled out and they built themselves a church and they call it the anti-peg Baptist church. And you can go down the road and you can see the pro-peg Baptist church. There you go. We Baptists have so much fun in church. <laughs> Chapter 14 of Romans. It's exactly what Paul is talking about, how the church gets upset. Where you put a chair on the roof of the church or where you put a peg in the wall of the church or if you don't put a peg in the wall of the church. That's what Paul is dealing with in this chapter, chapter 14 of Romans, and it is some of the most practical advice to give to the church today. Now, in Paul's day, they were dealing with the issue of meat offered to idols. Uh, we don't have a problem with it, so I have to come up with things that kind of fit the bill for, for today, and so we deal with a lot of different things. We don't get upset about meat. It doesn't bother me to eat a piece of meat. I don't care what you do with it. Uh, if you don't do something nasty to it, I'm going to eat it. It's going to be all right. But if you offer it up as a sacrifice to Buddha, it doesn't make any difference to me, but there's nothing to Buddha. There's only one true living God, Right? And uh, his name is Jehovah, so put that steak down there in front of me, and I guarantee you I'll eat it. So that was what was going on. That's what he's dealing with because it was very, very real 
in his day. Look at verse 13. Paul says, therefore, this is a new section right here. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, what's going to happen here is this. Paul is going to turn now to the mature believer, to the mature brother in Christ or the mature sister in Christ. Please understand that's generic when I say a mature brother or a weaker brother. Uh, that's just generic, so I don't have to go through the whole long paragraph every time. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, that I'm not going to be an obstacle or put an obstacle in front of a weaker brother. So Paul begins to deal with the, with the stronger brother and, and how he deals with the weaker brother. Now listen to me carefully. The mature believer recognizes his responsibility to love the weaker brother for the sake of the unity of the body of Christ. Now, we all see ourselves as mature. If I would do a little interview and I came down, are you, are you the weaker brother? Are you the strong? Eh, well, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed to say, I'm embarrassed. Are you embarrassed? I'm, I'm, I'm the stronger brother. I'm the more mature brother. That, that's all of us in here. All of us in here, we're mature. So let's just listen now to what Paul's going to say to us, because this is a word to the mature, and he's going to come and he's going to give us a specific word about how we treat, how we love and show our love to that weaker brother. Now, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Don't turn there. It's just a few pages uh, over. Uh, 1 Corinthians comes right after uh, Romans. But I want you to listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 to those of us who know more, who are mature. Now, concerning the things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We know there's nothing to, it, to an idol. Not, now, listen to him. Knowledge makes arrogant. Uh -oh. But love edifies. I'm not to sling around my maturity. I'm not to sling around how mature I am in Christ. I am to pour out love on all my brothers and sisters. And the reason is because Paul will come in 1 Corinthians 13 and he will say, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. My maturity and my knowledge of the things of God are negated when I am loveless. When I do not act in love, nobody gives a flying flip how mature I am. Amen. Now, that's just plain right there. That's just as plain as it can be. How do we love? Well, number one, the mature believer will sacrifice for the unity of the body of Christ. So, let me pick it back up now in verse 13. Therefore... He's referencing something he has just said. Uh, I'm going to go to that in just a second. It's really verse 10, but let me get into the, the, to the verse here. Therefore, let us not judge. Crino is the word. Now, he's got a word play here. Let us not judge one another anymore, but rather crino. This, 
judge this. Who am I to judge? What am I? I'm to judge myself. I'm to judge myself so as not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now look, he begins verse 13 with therefore. It points back up to verse 10 where he says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you regard your brother with contempt? Realize we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the weaker brother always judges the more mature brother, the stronger brother. Are you following my rules? I've got a list of rules, things you do, things you don't do. And he always judges everybody else by his list of rules. The stronger brother, the more mature brother, will often look down on the weaker brother in contempt. He will just disregard him is unimportant or beneath him or not where he is. And so he'll look down on that less mature believer. And Paul wants you to understand what you're both doing is this. You are judging. Therefore, verse 13, let us not judge. One reason we don't judge, he gives us back up in verse 10, is because one day we will stand before the real judge. And he, buddy, he will do all the judging at that moment and will need no help from us. And he'll judge each one of us as we stand there by ourselves. But he says this, he says, don't become, you judge, don't judge somebody else, judge yourself. And you do this when you judge yourself. Is there something that I do in this church that creates a stumbling block for someone else? Now, let me show you what stumbling block is and where it comes from. If you've got your Bibles, put your finger right there in Romans chapter 14 and go back to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. Are you there? Well, while you're turning to Leviticus 19, let me do something here at this point. Let me remind you what we're not talking about. I am not talking about here doctrinal issues or moral issues. Now come back and I'm going to take a moment to talk about this because this week I got a note from a pastor in another state who said, did you say so-and-so this past Sunday? I need to go back and listen to that. And I said, you sure do because that's not what I said. Preachers are, you just, there's something else anyway. I said, you go back and listen to it and you'll find out that's not what I said. Anyway, here we go. Um, we're not talking about doctrinal issues. We're right here, week from today, Christmas Eve. I believe in the virgin birth. I think Scripture teaches the virgin birth. I looked at, uh, I was just reading an article this week on that, looking at the words used in Isaiah, used in Luke, and uh, just looking at how the whole of the prophetic world spoke about the fact that this child, this Messiah, would come from a virgin. I don't question that. I don't doubt that. Uh, my wife this week was sharing with somebody about the Trinitarian nature of God. I'm thankful I have a wife who understands that, and she's able to talk to somebody about it. They were questioning the deity of Jesus Christ. I've got to tell you, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that that baby born in Bethlehem was fully God and fully man, and if he was not fully God and not fully man, what happened on Calvary means nothing. You're still in your sin, Paul would say. But he is. 
He was fully God. He is fully God and fully man. He is deity. He was God come in the flesh. So we don't have, we're not talking about a doctrinal issue here. We're not debating a doctrinal issue here. Nor are we debating a moral issue. The word of God is very clear. I'm going to just choose an area because I just have to choose an area. That uh, sex outside of marriage between one man and one woman uh, is fornication and is sin before God. Now, we have a lot of people, even a lot of people in the church that, uh, who say, well, now, wait a minute, we're really in love, and there's not anything wrong with it. Don't li- please, don't listen to me. I'm telling you the Word of God says it's sin. And you can protest and write every argument in the world you want to. In the end, God will judge, and I'm telling you, it is sin. But that's not what we're dealing with. So don't get upset. Those are the things we're not dealing with. Do you remember last week when I shared with you about two great preachers, one Joseph Parker, one Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon and Parker fell out because Spurgeon didn't like that Parker went to the theater, and Parker didn't like that Spurgeon smoked cigars. As much as I dislike a cigar... It doesn't tell me in Scripture, oh, but there's a principle there that your body, yes, it is. You have, listen, listen to Paul, work out your own salvation on that. Uh, can you smoke a cigar and go to heaven? Well, I think probably Spurgeon made it. <laughs> I, I really do. Um, you know, I'm not real hep on cigars, but I think he's probably there. Is it wrong to go to the movie? I think Joseph Parker probably made it, and he went to the theater. So those are the issues we're dealing with. Those kind of things, those are the things that split churches. Pro-peg, anti-peg. You know, well, I wanted green carpet in that church. I just don't understand. My feelings are hurt. I'm going somewhere else where they got green carpet. In 50 years, it's all going to burn up anyway. You know, it's going to be gone. So who cares? Blue carpet, green carpet orange carpet. Well, let's look. Let me get on from that. Look at what he says. He comes through this and he says back in Leviticus this about a stumbling block. He comes and he says, you shall not curse a deaf man. Now the word of God says, nor place a stumbling block before the blind. Now that's where that is first mentioned. This concept of stumbling block. You put something down in front of somebody. How rude, how unkind, how, I don't know, just mean-spirited could somebody be to put a stumbling block in front of a blind man for him to trip and fall over? There's nothing. For, you, know who, what I, you know what I think of? it. I think of Jimmy Stewart and Lee Marvin in that John Wayne movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Y'all remember when Jimmy Stewart was coming through there with the steak dinner and old Mar- Lee Marvin took, you know, sticks his foot out and trips him and he's not even blind and he falls and spills the steak on the floor and all of that. And you know, do y'all watch good TV? <laughs> you need to watch some old black and white stuff. That's the good stuff. Anyway, that's what he's talking about. How cruel, how mean, how rude to do something like that. Well, here he's saying we in the church should never put a stumbling block in front of a brother, in front of someone else. 
And you say, well, what exactly are you talking? When we coax somebody, when we coach somebody, when we urge or encourage somebody or ridicule somebody into doing something that they feel like this just isn't the right thing for me to do. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. The only thing I can think of this morning is if I said something to somebody, hey, Deb's going to be gone this week. There's a new Harry Potter movie out. Come on and let's go see it with me. And uh, my brother in the church looks and he says, you know, pastor, I, I just don't know that I, I could, I really came out of a dark background. I, I came out of you know, my, my, uh, my background is we dabbled in some of that witchcraft and stuff. And I really don't feel right. God's delivered me from that. I just don't feel like we can go into that. By the way, you're going to see that in Ephesians as we come into the first, uh, chapter of Ephesians in the first of the year. I just don't feel like I can do that. I just don't feel right doing it. Come on. Good night. Grow up. And come on with me. I don't want to go by myself. Not a thing in there. And I get, in, I get him into the movie, and he's squirming, and he's twisting, and he shifts back, and he shifts this way, and he shifts that way. And I can tell he's uncomfortable, and he's looking down, and he's looking up, and he's looking at me, and he's looking around. And I've got him in a movie. He doesn't have, the movie's over, and we go out, and he just says, I just feel slimy. I just don't feel right. I just don't think this is the right thing for me to do. And I went in there and watched this thing. You insisted that I go, and I went with you, and I wish I hadn't have seen it. Now, that's what he's talking about. Um, we've all talked somebody into doing something they really did not want to do, that we thought was perfectly okay. And, and uh, yet... We talked him into doing it. Now, look at what he says. He says, when you do that, two things happen. Number one, you destroy a brother. Now, I'm not saying this. This is what the text says. In verse 15, for if because of food or the movie or a cigar or whatever, for if because of a movie, your brother is hurt. Now, the word there for hurt is the word apolumi or apoluma. It's a word that uh, means to grieve as if somebody has died. He's grieving. It's a present active imperative, uh, or indicative, I'm sorry, present active indicative, and it means that he grieves, and he's grieving, and he's grieving, and he's grieving. So when I walk out of the movie theater with him, this guy's just grieving over what he's done. Gosh, I feel bad. Oh, hush. There's nothing wrong. You know, come on, let's go get a Coke. Let's go, you know, get a hot dog or something after the meal. I just really feel, maybe I'll just go on home. And I see him the next week. And he looks at me and he says, man, I still don't feel any better. I, I've just done something I'm struggling with. I, I, I just, I, I, I hadn't read my Bible all week. And the guy then begins to fall out of church. Who knows how many people over the last 50 years of Valleydale Church were weaker brothers or sisters and were coaxed into doing something that they felt like was wrong, and now they no longer walk with the Lord. And you say, when a preacher, you're making too much of this. No, I'm not. This is the Word of God. I didn't say it was comfortable or wonderful, but we need to hear it. Because we sometimes will push things off on another person. The stronger, more mature believer will sacrifice for unity. Not to do that. 
He says, not only will they grieve, but look at the last part of this sentence. He says, do not destroy. Do you know what that means? It means destroy. It means to absolutely destroy with your food him for who Christ died. I have wrecked now his walk with Christ because I urged him to do something he felt like was sin to him. And by the way, that's what that last verse says. You know, uh, what's not of faith is of sin. If you can't do it in faith, then listen, let me tell you, to you it's sin. And so now what he's done is he's messed up this guy's walk with Christ. He's messed him up. He's not in the word. He's not doing the things that he should. He's not where he was. What he's done now is he has really wrecked this brother. Now, you say when a preacher, that's the tough part right there. Because what we're all sitting here thinking is this. You know, to some people, anything we do, they've always got to complain about. Isn't that right? That's not who he's talking about. There's always going to be those in, a, in the church who always are complaining, who's always got an upset, who always doesn't like this and they don't like that. You can't get them out to Baptist church. They're going to always be here. You can't blast them out. Vote them out, run them out, anything. They are here to stay. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about a specific brother in Christ who is struggling in his life to walk with Jesus and to understand what are the things I do, what are the things that I do not do, and how can I grow in my life in Christ to be mature when I offend one of those little ones right there? That's who he's talking about. He's not talking about that person who's never liked anything their entire lives. Y'all know. (laughs) Y'all laugh at me, but you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying. So there's a verse. Now here's the second thing that he says, and it's this. He comes now and he says, you destroy your own witness. If you look in the middle of verse 15, it says this. He comes and he says, you are no longer walking according to love. Now, you remember, he's already talked to us about the royal law of love. James talks about that, that we love our brothers, that we are to love one another. He comes and he says, when you live like that, when you're doing that to a brother, to a weaker brother, you are not walking according to love. In other words, you are completely out of the will of God. But then look at what he says in verse 16. Therefore, because of that, do not let what is to you a good thing be spoken of as evil. You do something, you know, we, we go, we used to, we don't do it anymore because the kids are all gone, but we used to go and see things at the movies. We do it as an out, we go out to eat and then go to a movie. We enjoyed it. It was something all of the kids and us enjoyed. They enjoyed it. We enjoyed it. It was not a thing of the world, but now there are brothers and sisters that would find something wrong with it. Oh no, we wouldn't dare do that. He says, don't let What for you is a good thing, don't so ram it down everybody else's throat that it wrecks your witness with other people. Now, I'm just telling you, this is as practical as it gets in the Christian life. He says, for the kingdom of God is this. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. 
The kingdom of God is not made up of my little things that I think God wants us to do. It's not made up of all of that. It's not made up of my rules. It's not made up of the things uh, that I have a strong opinion about. That's not the kingdom of God. Well, you say, what is the kingdom of God? Well, look at what he says in the rest of verse 17. He says, it is not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness in the Holy Spirit, peace in the Holy Spirit, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit goes with each one of those because of the grammar there. It is righteousness, it is peace, it is joy, it is celebration. God intended for this body to experience that righteousness, peace, and joy. You go back and look at the Old Testament, every time they would have these special days and occasions when they would go up to Jerusalem, they were parties. Sunday morning is to be the weekend party or the start of the week party. This is to be a party up here, folks. We're to have a good time and enjoy each other and get in the presence of God and sit under his word because it is good for us and it grows us and it creates joy in our lives. When you hear all of these Old Testament prophets speak about the kingdom of God, do you know what they talked about? They talked about all kinds of people coming together in unity. I'm going to read you a passage right now because all these are the nations that are gathered up around Israel right now out of Isaiah chapter 19. And I want you to listen to what uh, the prophet Isaiah has to say. God is speaking prophetically and he says, in that day, there's coming a day when there will be a highway that will come from Egypt to Assyria. Now, if you're coming out of Egypt and you're going to go up into Syria, Iran, uh, Iraq, and Iran, where you got to go through? You got to go through Israel. In that day, there will be a highway to Egypt, to Assyria. The Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be a third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. The very people that are fighting right now and that everybody's standing on edge that could tip over into a nuclear war, they're going to become a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people. Those are Africans. The Assyrians are not only Arabs, but they are also um, Persians. The work of my hands and Israel, Jews, my inheritance. You ever think you'll see a day when that'll happen? The Old Testament prophet said, all of these people will come together in unity together. And they will worship me. This is the millennial kingdom of God that he's speaking of right here. And do you understand that Valleydale Church is to be just a little slice of that in the midst of this community? That's who we're supposed to. Do you understand that if you're at a place of work, that's what you're to be at that place of work? That in your place of work, you are to be the righteousness and the peace and the joy of Almighty God in that place. Well, let me show you the second thing because I have 19 seconds. 
back to Romans. And the second thing is this, is we not only sacrifice, we can give up our rights. I could take you back over to 1 Corinthians and show you that. Paul talks about giving up his rights. We can sacrifice for the unity of the church. I don't have to have my way. But now the second thing is this, is that the mature will serve in order for there to be unity in the church. Verse 19, he's going to give you three ways we serve. How can we serve in a way that will cause this place to have unity? Well, number one, we can pursue. So then we pursue. Dioko is the word in the Greek. So we can pursue, hunt, stalk, run after, drive toward the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Now, a lot of times we get in a church and we pursue the things that create upset. A lot of times we get in a church and we will run after the things that somebody is, um, is wanting to do that we don't like. Sometimes we can get in a church and what we'll pursue and have a passion for are those things that... Um, that just create unrest in the body of Christ. He says here, two things. Every one of us as the mature are to pursue. We're to pursue peace in this place and building up of one another. I have to think about that every meeting I go into. Mac, what are you here for? I'm here to bring about a peace in the midst of God's people to help do whatever I can to do that. And number two, just to build up the body of Christ. I'm not here about building up buildings. I'm not here about building up reputations. I'm not here to build up all these other things that people think preachers are to build up. I'm here to build this, this body up. That's my main task. And to keep peace. Number two, the second thing is this, we serve by not tearing down. Now notice this because this kind of rhymes. Dioko, he says, so then we dioko. Verse 20, he says, we do not, um, I can't even read my own writing. Um, kaluo, we do not kaluo. We dioko, but we don't kaluo, which means to tear down the work of God. We don't tear down the work of God for the sake of food, for the sake of my way. This is what I think is right. This is what I'd like to see happen. He says we don't do that because in doing that, we'll often tear down the work of God in a place. Then he comes to the last one, and the last one is this, verse 21. He says, it is, not, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. That's where he comes and he says, you can serve by not demanding your own way. I can eat that meat, but if it causes you to stumble, I can go to that movie, but if it causes you to stumble, there are things I'm not going to do if I know in my heart it is going to have a detrimental effect on a brother who's watching me. That's why I don't go out and get head over heels in debt. I, I grew up in a church where a pastor did that, and it was a horrible witness. That's why I, I am very careful. You're not going to find me in, most, in, in a lot of books. You're just not going to find me there because I'm not going to do it. I could see it with my wife beside me, but I'm not going to do it because I don't want somebody else influenced by my behavior, by what I do. So I think about that all the time. 
Um, sometimes maturity means you have to just cheer the team on. Step out of the way, sit down, and not demand your right and cheer the church on. In the 1970s, I graduated from high school in 76, and we got married in 79 because she was having a fit to marry me. And uh, so we got married before I even finished college. And, um, but you, you know the fun thing to do in the 1970s, I tell you, it was a lot of fun. It was to watch Yankee baseball because Billy Martin, you see, you see old Billy right there, and Reggie Jackson, Mr. October. <sighs> Billy Martin coached. The Yankees, Reggie Jack, they didn't do anything but fight the whole game. The whole time, that's all they did. They were in each other's face in the dugouts. They were constantly back and forth at one another in the press. Well, in 1977, uh, the Yankees were on their way to the World Series. They had to win the pennant. They were playing Kansas City. And uh, as they were going to play Kansas City, there was a pitcher for Kansas City by the name of Paul Splitorf. Y'all remember Paul Splitorf? I don't. Um, what a name, though. Paul Splitorf was a left-handed pitcher. Jackson was a left-handed batter. And Jackson couldn't hit anything that Splitorf put across the plate. I mean, he couldn't even, he couldn't even foul out. Um, because of, he couldn't, he just couldn't hit. He had trouble. He was the only guy that he had much trouble with because that guy was not just Mr. October. In the 70s, that guy was Mr. Baseball right there. There was nobody better than Reggie Jackson uh, in baseball. Well, they came up to this game. Splitorf was going to be pitching, and Billy Martin decided, I'm not going to put Reggie Jackson in. He's going to have to sit on the bench. And he told one of his assistant coaches, you go tell him. <laughs> so an assistant coach went back to tell Reggie, Reggie, uh, you're going to have to sit on the bench today. He's going to put in Paul Blair. He's going to put Paul Blair in to take your place. He's going to be in the right, um, uh, in right field. He's going to bat. He's going to play. You're going to have to sit on the bench. Well, you know what Reggie Jackson did? He blowed up like a toad frog. He just blew up big as day, you know, started flexing, you know, poked his lip out, got mad, started pouting, started saying all kind of stuff. That assistant coach turned around and looked at him and said, Reg, just a minute, just a minute, Reggie. I'm going to tell you one thing. You can do that. You can throw a fit. You can be angry. You can get mad. You can go through here and just poison everybody in this locker room and you will ruin this game for us and we will lose and we'll lose the chance to go to the World Series. Well, for the first time in the life of Reggie, Reggie Jack, he listened. He listened. Now, the press got all of who was on the roster and they saw that Reggie Jackson was not playing, but Paul Blair was playing in his place. And they said, this makes for good TV. We're got the, every camera in that place was trained on the Yankee dugout that day to watch this blow up. But it never happened. Because Reggie Jackson went out, sat on the bench, and clapped at every 
good play that happened, stood up and cheered the Yankees on and was hollering out to all of the guys, even Paul Blair, encouraging them, urging them on. And do you know what happened? 1977, they won the game. They won the pennant. They went to the World Series against the Dodgers, and they beat the Dodgers. And Reggie Jackson got the MVP of the 77 World Series, all because he grew up, sat on the bench, and cheered everybody else on. Let's stand. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.